Hey guys, today's guest, Mark Ollie, is going to be talking about the legendary Merlin and King Arthur. We'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good afternoon, everybody. At least, uh, at least in the United States, um, it's tw- it's noon here in California, and it's three p.m. back east. And I know it's <clears throat> around eight or so in the UK, where our guest is from. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need or you think you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. It still might take us a while because California is a huge state. We've got a little bit of everything here. Of course, we have the beaches that everybody knows about, but we've got mountains, we've got deserts, we've got highland, lowland, agricultural areas, you name it, we've got it here. So that's why it may take us a little while to get to you. But it never takes more than one or two days. And in the meantime, if you do, you know, if you do have something paranormal going on in, in, in your place, I'm not gonna say business or whatever, but in your place. We do have psychics and mediums on staff who can phone you. And in most cases, they, they, they can call me energy down until we get out there. Okay. If you are watching from Facebook, and a lot of you are today, uh, please be sure if you like and see what, if you see, if you like and see, I'm getting backwards. Blah. If you see and like what you hear, please be sure to send me a thumbs up, happy heart, happy face, things like that. And be sure to comment in the chat room because what that does is it puts us up higher in, the, in, the, in Facebook's computer, the FYP which puts us out to more people. And that being said as well, if you're home today listening, or maybe you're at your office at lunch or listening, and uh, you like the show and there's other people in there with you, feel free to tell them to sign on and, you know, come check us out. Come check us, you know, come check the show out. Also, if you haven't done so already and followed the show on Facebook, please be sure to do that. Same for YouTube. Same, same rules, okay? Uh, we, you know, we have more than 900 videos sitting over there, all different topics. And uh, we're looking for subscribers. I'm trying to hit that thousand mark, you know, this year. So if you could help me out doing that, that would be great. Uh, there's no cost to it or anything like that. Uh, and the same rule goes for Facebook. You know, as are on Facebook, where you can, if you like what you hear, leave me a thumbs up, a smiley face, you know, love hearts. Someday I'll get this. See what I mean? I just I still can't do this. You know, those, those love old heart things. And uh, do leave a, a comment or two in the chat room because that does help us with YouTube's FYP and, and they will distribute us out farther. Okay, that being said, if you want to find California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, just Google California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. We're all over the place. Or Google California Haunts Radio because that's easy to find as well. All right, that being said, I'm really excited for my guest today. I love this topic. I am a huge, huge fan of King Arthur. Whether it's a good, whether it's a nice King Arthur or the mean King Arthur or whatever the legends say, I'm a huge fan. When I was in England a few years ago, got to go to Canterbury, went to different places, and just totally, totally loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I love, you know, and I learned a lot about King Arthur, 
even when I was over there. So I'm looking forward to Mark Ollie, who's with us again, to talk about King Arthur. So without further ado, let me bring in Mark and we can get the show on the road. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> favorite, oh, favorite topic in the whole world. Wow, gosh, I've got I've not got much to live up to then, have I? <laughs> <laughs> How are you today? Uh, not too bad. Uh, living large as usual. Um, it's been raining all day over here. I'm not a big fan of rain. You can't do anything when it rains. So right. I've just been hunkered down. So, uh, yeah, but other than that, fine. I uh, had the awakening conference on Saturday, which was quite an experience for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. uh, that was over in Bolton, nearby town. Um, yeah, I kind of um, did a bit of the old performance art on stage. You know, I think I, think I held the audience. Uh, but, you know, you've just got to do these things, you know, stick me on a big stage with a big audience and that's what you get. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, you know, when I think about King Arthur, I think it's the same way a lot of people do it. Unless you've read the books, you know, or you've seen different versions of King Arthur, you know, mm. depending on who's playing him. The one I remember is my parents dragging me out at like 10 o'clock at night to go to the theater to see Camelot. I mean, that's King Arthur. I know. <laughs> Richard Harris, right? And yeah, yeah. Um, there was one thing I saw a few years ago on Discovery Channel that really hit me was that they were doing this thing on finding King, King Arthur's grave. And it was interesting because it was foggy. And then all of a sudden you hear his voice and it is Richard Harris. Yeah. He's standing there, he goes, I am King Arthur. And I was like, whoa, it's him. It is the king. You know. So, yeah. So that's where that's where my background with it comes. But I know there's good and bad to the story. You know, I understand that he may not be what, what we suspect he truly is. Correct. Uh, yeah, he's gone through a few changes. Um, I think in the book I say it. There's there's probably an Arthur for every generation. Uh, oh. You know, he just he just adds the book. Just keeps getting um, reinvented. Uh, for the benefit of those of you that struggle with this, it's the Polychronicon, the Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur. Um, yeah. That simply means it runs in chronological order. That's all that means. It's uh, Merlin first because Merlin has Druidic origins. Right. Joseph because he kind of has the, the early Christian origins. And then, of course, Arthur because he's, you know, next on the scene. So it kind of it's an interesting book because it gives you all the background, you know, all the bits uh -huh. that nobody ever tells you. So you see all the things in the movies and you see all the things in the TV series and stuff like that. You end up thinking, you know, why on earth? Did they do that? You know, I think one of the most recent Arthur films was set in the late Roman era, and that absolutely blew everybody. You know, um, it was the uh, Clive, Clive, what's his name, one with um, Kira Knightley and all that sort of stuff, right, Arthur, right. the story or whatever, late Roman. And everyone would look at that and they would just go, hang on a minute, this is not the Arthur we know. This is not Excalibur. You know, what the hell's this? Um, and it's not all shiny plate armor and stuff. It's Roman. Well, the reasons why people do that and the reasons why that sort of thing uh, happens is because that's the right period. You, you know, he's born in, Arthur's born in 483, and uh -huh. he dies in 539. So basically over here, the Romans have cleared off. You know, they all went home, a lot of them, round about 416 to 420. They'd all sort of, you know, why is that that time already? Uh, sorry, <laughs> old joke. <laughs> they all disappeared off around about that time, went home. Uh -huh. um, and we were left to deal with stuff in our own way, and that was really where Arthur came from. So, So films like that are actually pretty accurate you know but mm -hmm. not at all what people expect mm -hmm. well you know i i realized that it was you know arthur's time it was not camelot i mean they're, they're not running around the castle singing 
you know, and all this stuff. But it just it, it just fascinates me because because there is the myth, and then is there reality to the myth? You know, is is there have they found his grave yet, or is or whatever? And I know you know last time I I was on Discovery a while back, they were still looking. You know, they they had some spots maybe, but they weren't sure. Yeah, um, well, it's interesting because the legends, um, such as we have them, split into two camps. Mm-hmm. When it comes to his actual grave, there was one set of legends, and it's quite a lot of legends, that said mm-hmm. he'll never be found. You will never know, you know, and even Merlin says that in quite a few of the legends, for the burial place of Arthur is unknown. And then there's another bunch of legends, and if you follow those through, they do actually indicate potential sites where he uh-huh. could be. Now, this is where it gets important. Uh, round about 542 AD, we had one of the biggest planetary catastrophes of all time. We had a massive meteorite shower. The volcano Krakatoa went up. There's volcanic activity all around the Southern Hemisphere. And, and it blacked us out. It literally blacked Britain out for about three or four years. It was known as the Yellow Plague. Now, you can imagine, you know, Arthur, he's not a king. He's just a war leader. He's a very prominent warrior, war leader. So they're going to go and stick him in a burial mound like they've stuck all the other British war leaders in. Mm-hmm. So they bury him under this massive pile of earth mm-hmm. and they don't get chance to remember where he is. You know, there's no chance to write that down because the beginnings of this catastrophe start, you know, he dies in 539, but two years before that, 537, mm-hmm. you start to get the first rumblings of these volcanic eruptions going up and what have you. Uh, there's a, a book called Catastrophe by a guy called David Keyes that looks at just how bad this was on a worldwide scale. And believe me, it started the Dark Ages. You know, it just obliterated cultures the world over uh, and over here in the uk we didn't unfortunately dodge that bullet we got it as well so that's i think the actual real reason why there's this legend of him you know being somewhere asleep with his knights to return in the you know britain's greatest hour of need mm-hmm. but nobody knows exactly where um if i was a betting man i've, I've got a, an idea where he might be um not gonna you know Give that one out as a spoiler. Right, 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 right. You'll have, to, you'll have to dash out and grab the book, but trust there you me. Go. I mean, grab his book. Well, I go into some detail in there as to where I think he is. That's the one. Um, oh, just by the way, on the cover there, what's interesting is the guy underneath the word Merlin with the dog, that's Merlin. The guy with the two uh, cruets, one of the blood of Christ and the sweat of Christ, which mm-hmm. is the original grail, that's Joseph. And Arthur's the big fella in the middle. So they're actually sat under their respective names. I have sneaked a grail in, though, in the bottom bottom right-hand corner there, because I think it's fair to say there was another grail. What you're looking at there is the Welsh version of, of what they perceive to be uh, the Holy Grail. I've actually got 24 different versions, I think, in total. You know, there's there's tons of things that can be be a grail. And uh, once you understand how what a grail is, how you make a grail and how a grail mm-hmm. functions, all of a sudden you're like, well, hang on a minute, there could be hundreds of these things, you know, because mm-hmm. there's... There's the Holy Grail, capital T, capital H, capital G. That's the cup that Christ used at the Last Supper, and I don't think anybody's ever argued with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, courtesy of some Islamic shipping receipts that were found in 2012, that currently resides in Spain. 
uh, with the cup of the disciples. So both of them, both of these little stone cups are over there in Spain. So we know where that one's gone. That's actually a mystery that has only very recently been solved. But lots of the other grails are still missing. Um, and uh, any chalice, any chalice that's used in communion can be justifiably referred to as a grail. Okay. Um, do you want me to tell you what grail means? I'll throw yeah, that one. Yeah, let's do it. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's interesting because when you look at Geoffrey of Monmouth and then you start to look at everything that follows that, everyone's like, oh, it's all written by Normans, you know, and it's Normans equate to knights. Well, actually, it's that's not strictly true. Normans actually go backwards and they equate to Vikings. They are the Vikings, the Norsemen of northern France. That's, that's the Normans. So what they would have understood the word Graal to mean, it's derived from the same Viking word as gruel. And what, what they had was these big stone bowls that they made porridge in that they sent round on the Viking boats and people would eat from them on long voyages. Um, and that's where gruel comes from. These things are known as graals. That's what they are. So the graal, capital G, is that bowl that was used that they dip bread in at the Last Supper. So it's bread and wine. They dip in bread in it. So all they're doing is just applying a Viking name to an earlier object. From a christian era as soon as you know that well it just you know all this all this uh mystery of like you know a thousand years of people running around going oh we must find the grail you know everything from monty python to who knows who you know, yes we have one of those um <laughs> sorry it's any monty python fans out they'll get the reference um so yeah all this mystery is is really not as big a mystery when you actually start to dig into it um i mean i've got to say it's not easy uh it's taken me 45 years to get the book finished um and actually i mean this is this is to give you some idea of scale uh there we go whoa that's thick wow yeah, it's uh, this is the hardback oh if anybody buys it get the hardback if you can because oh there you go we uh there's wow and it you know somebody years ago somebody actually said to me oh you'll never get a book out of that there's not enough material to write a book about that, you know, really not. There's the, you know, look, well, there it is. There it is. That is, that is it. So if wow. you want the whole truth and nothing but the truth, boom, that's it. But I don't think we'll cover that in the space of an hour, but <laughs> <laughs> if you've got any burning topics, throw them at me. Well, but, you know, I was just wondering now that I see how thick that book is, how difficult was this to do? Because I mean, there's, there's hardly any records left, right. You know, about, about him. Well, to begin with, it was a naive thought. It was a naive idea on my part. So I used to, um, before I went to art college, I used to make cine films back in the day when it was Super 8 and Standard 8 movie. So I did a Super 8 movie called King Arthur Seasons of the Mind. And it was all about the early Arthurian legends. And I did it in 1977. So that tells you how long ago it was. Uh, it won a couple of you know, amateur movie awards and stuff. And it got me into art right. college. So it was, it was a great movie to do. But that really got me interested and a few years later, I was studying archaeology and I still had this burning desire to try and find out what the truth was. So then I started digging um, into mm -hmm. literature. So it's kind of, you know, literary archaeology rather than physical. Mm -hmm. um, and then as year, the years have gone, I've just been keeping notes, you know, kind of literally paragraph by paragraph, you know, building this thing up and pulling information from all different sources and ruling out things that are just later nonsense. You know what I mean? Like, you know, shiny plate armor and big castles and rescuing damsels from dragons and all that. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not in the original legends, all that kind of nonsense, getting rid of all that. 
what it eventually led me back to was obviously the Normans are writing either in Norman French or mm-hmm. Latin. Um, and to some extent, it's also in it's in Catalan, it's in all kinds of other uh, European languages. So I've got mm-hmm. loads of bits from that. The real big thing was meeting up with two guys, Scott Lloyd and Steve Blake. Steve Blake is a Welsh historian um, and Scott Lloyd runs, um, well, for a while, he was in charge of, of a large department at, at the library in Aberystwyth in Wales. And they have the biggest library of Arthurian literature in the world. They've, they've got this enormous thing. They wrote a book called The Keys to Avalon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they did a second one called Pendragon, The Search for the Real Arthur. Now, they thought that their Arthur was in Wales. Now, if anybody knows British geography, Wales is the bit that looks a bit like a pig's head that sticks out on one mm-hmm. side of, of mm-hmm. the British Isles. But at the time Arthur was alive, that country was double the size because it came all the way across to the Pennines, which are the central hills of Britain, and also floated kind of north as well. So you get some in southern Scotland, bits Mm -hmm. of guys up there. Welsh Britons are up in Lancashire and Cumbria. They're all over the place. So um, Scott came to me one day and he said, "Uh, you've been doing Arthur in those areas, haven't you? And I'm like, yeah, I know my way around there. He said, well, we can do the Wales bit and you do the England, Scotland Mm -hmm. bit. So between us, we actually, I, I assisted, I took photographs for their books and also, so I'm not going to take any credit off them, but right. they fed a lot of unpublished material that didn't make it into their books back into the pool for me to have a look at. More particularly, and this is the answer to your question, that was it took a long time, didn't it? More particularly, the early Welsh stuff, because that's where Arthur was. He was in old wales it's known as the henogled the old north that was his territory um and him and all his relatives and the rest of his tribe and they're all there in that particular area um scott and uh, steve did this amazing job they had to look at place names in the early welsh legends and they had to look at people's names in the early welsh legends to see where they turned up and they're all clustered there's this massive knot of stuff sat in north wales that's that's it you know there's an odd one or two that are elsewhere but you know like drust which is up in scotland that's tristan one or two of the knights are scattered around but most of them vast majority 80 90 percent are just centered on north wales so from that you can work out the geography Uh, there's not a huge amount of the welsh stuff that survived every now and again they find a new bit and i think at the last count there's only three people in britain that could read archaic medieval welsh so if there's like you know a thousand of these manuscripts it's going to take them a while to get through them all translated you know Mm -hmm. um medieval ones turn up all the time you get i think a fragment turned up last year of of one of the stories uh, bound into the cover of another book they found it in a library um, and we've got loads of private libraries over here so who knows how much more material is out there right. um, that's how they found the legend of Segwain in the green knight somebody's library caught fire and when they were pulling all the books out of the library one of the manuscripts that they rescued was Segwain. but that would that would still be sat there now you know we it may as well have not existed we wouldn't have known it was there had it not been for that um so you know stuff's coming up all the time but that for me that's later that's all later material Mm -hmm. it's interesting but it's not source material you know Mm -hmm. um if you want to know what the source material is actually the book's interesting because i've done it in five chapters um originally it was going to be four and i knew what was going to happen Mm -hmm. um 
yeah, people were going to come along and they were going to say, oh, you can't write an academic book on this. How can you do that as an archaeologist? There's absolutely no proof from this era at all. So I thought, right, you beggars, what I'm going to do, chapter five, which is called The Legend, is just like an enormous bibliography of everything that survived. But the nice part of it is it, it's also a readable chapter. It explains what's going on in each of the manuscripts. And again, it's in date order because it's polychronicon. The entire thing is chronological. Um, and it's great. It's fantastic. It makes great reading. But there's about 800 sources. You know, we're not short of them. There's plenty of them out there if you want to go and find mm -hmm. them. And there's, there's got to be probably more than more than 800 sources in that last chapter. So it's everything, everything you ever wanted to know about King Arthur. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Now, you mentioned that Merlin came first, obviously. So uh, tell me about Merlin. Who, what, okay. Who uh, I, I, started, I started the first chapter with Merlin uh, because a lot of people struggle with who and what he was. And what you've got to understand is it's a title. So it's not mr merlin it's the merlin so the merlin was the most prominent member of the welsh druidic clans if you like at a given point in time so actually the first merlin the first person called merlin is a poet called taliesin it's merlin taliesin um and then you get another merlin another merlin another merlin but the, the most important thing i've got five of them i think in total maybe seven but five for certain there's two of them alive when Arthur's alive. There's, there's a guy called um, Merlin Le Logan, which means dear friend or little friend. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, he starts the ball rolling. He lives to about halfway through Arthur's uh, life. He gets to see the Battle of Baden. Arthur wins. You know, Saxons are defeated. You know, his whole outlook as a Merlin was to try and bring the Roman Empire back. So he mm -hmm. sees, you know, Arthur as doing that. Um, and at the ripe old age of well over 100, he passed away to be replaced by another guy called Merlin Willett. Merlin Willett is known as Merlin the Mad because he witnesses the defeats of Arthur. He witnesses the decline of Arthur um, and gradually goes nuts. Um, and then the Welsh turn on themselves. They turn on each other after Arthur's dead. Uh, there's a battle of Ardurd up in um, the lowlands of Scotland that, that basically wiped out any chance of, of the Welsh rising up again. Um, and that's where he ends up. He ends up up in Cumbria. So there are several of them. But, and this is the important thing, if you're not sure how Druids tick, if you don't know how they think, it doesn't really make any sense to try and look at Merlin because you, you, you don't understand him as a character. So the Druids come first because they come out of the Bronze Age, they come out of the Iron Age, and they go right through the Roman period before they arrive at Arthur. And then right at the end of that, that's when you get Joseph, you know? So really all the background, I mean, it's crazy, you know. When, when you think about Merlin, he's sitting there at the end of a religion that has developed over a period of 3,000 years. That's longer than Christianity. So at the point where he's serving the requirements of Arthur, he's the representative of a system that goes all the way to Pythagoras and the Greeks in like five, 600 BC, and then back even further than that. It's, it's the sum total of all of that prehistoric religion brought together. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the dark side and the magical side and the mysterious side of the Arthurian legends. You know, that's what he gives to that. That's what he brings to that. Um, 
And then the next one's Joseph. I mean, Joseph is either side of the crucifixion of Christ. So he's, you know, kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s AD. He's in that dispersion period for Christians all over planet Earth. And he brings it here. But because of the grail, you don't have any choice. You have to look at Joseph. You can't just go, oh, there's nothing to do with the grail. There's nothing to see here, you know, and just kind of leave it. You can't do that. You've, you've got to include Joseph. And in the early days, it becomes very apparent that the Druids and the Christians actually got on quite well together because they were equally hated by the Romans. You know, you, you couldn't be a Roman citizen if you were either of those two, you know. Uh, and in this country, the Romans attacked both classes of of religious uh, beliefs, they attacked them and drove them onto Anglesey in the area that later became Arthur's territory. So there's some really crucial spiritual material there that's going on in the background. There's, there's a real strong structure to it. I have to say, doing the real Arthur, trying to do real research based on proper history and looking at the way things piece together mm-hmm. is far better than the nonsense the fiction, the rubbish, you know, forget it. it. It doesn't feel real, the fiction. When you start to look at what's happening really chronologically and you look at the life of Arthur and you look at what these people are doing, boy, is it real. It, it, it's a real gritty experience. If Arthur were alive today and, and could look at the history that people have written on him, and I'm talking about the the fluffy stuff, the movies, you know, the, the Excalibur, all this going on. <laughs> yeah. what, do you, what, what, what do you think he would think? Uh, well, once he got around the shock of what moving pictures are, because um, I don't <laughs> think he would have coped very well with that. Um, he'd probably be, do you know, one or two of them, one or two of the movies, I think he would understand the drama in the uh-huh. storytelling because there are some surprises um, with some of the movies where they've actually got a few bits of it right. So I think he would be surprised to see that that little elements of it had survived so long. But then there are other there are other movies, uh, which I won't mention, right. um, that I think he would be utterly horrified by. Um, and I, I really don't think he would get it, you know. Um, let me just read you a little bit off the back of here, because this, this, okay. really, this really sums okay. it up, but it, it kind of answers it. Uh, this is there's a load of blurb on the back here, and it tells you all about. But there's a nice summary of the characters. It says Merlin becomes one of an ancient line of Pythagorean scholars and political visionaries. Okay, Joseph of Arimathea is a religious dissident fleeing persecution and death to far off foreign shores, and Arthur is a hardened womanizing battle leader who loses his entire family and culture to war, and eventually natural disaster so you you don't really get much more 21st century than that you know it's it literally has got everything what kind of person for the research you've done and he was a warlord what 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 type of personality do do you think that he had well you have to you have to look at this is the beauty of doing things in chronological order you've got to look at sort of where he comes from and it wasn't a comfortable sort of union if you like at the beginning i'm not going to say how because again that's a big spoiler but um but his 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 father uther pendragon actually has to sort of con his way into ending up acquiring uh, the woman of his dreams so Mm -hmm. it's kind of it doesn't start well 
Um, then he's born to somebody then who's already a warrior and potentially he's born on campaign. So he's not even born here. He's brought here. So he's not got a very stable beginning at all. Um, as he's growing up, he doesn't see much of his dad. He ends up being fostered out. I, I won't use the Welsh name for him, but he gets fostered out to this knight called Hector. Mm-hmm. And Hector's on the lakes of Bala Lake. So we can we actually can go and stand where his villa was because it's an archaeological site. So it's 110 percent fact that's hector's villa you know and hector taught him how to sword fight um you know kai was was his adopted brother um so he's growing up he's growing up in a warrior culture uh you know he, he was probably thinking oh do you know one of these days I'll, I'll get together with my dad and we'll you know we'll go off and have a scrap and this that and the other blow me at the age of 14 if the anglo-saxons okay. don't poison uther so the closest Arthur gets to that is to get a message coming probably from Ludlow, which I think is where he was poisoned. He gets this message coming through in Bala Lake saying, I'm sorry, mate, your dad's dead. Guess what? You're in charge. Um, so at a very early age, he's, he's got to rise to the to the level of his father. He's got, you know, big set of boots to fill. Uh-huh. And then he goes on to, he falls in love with a girl in the local village and produces a child. The child turns out to be Mordred who stabs him in the back, his own kid, you know. The second one is a, a lass from a, a town over here called Ruthin, and he has a fling with her, which doesn't go down terribly well. That's that's a pretty grim story. Uh, and he, he ends up really enraging another family, which which stays right to the end. You know, it's, it's not good. He's not building good bridges here. And the third one is a political marriage of convenience with a Pictish queen called Guinevere, who, again... As soon as Arthur's out of sight, as soon as Arthur's campaigning over on the continent, she's off with Mordred, his son. So he's not doing terribly well. You know, it's like, think Game of Thrones, okay? It's like Game of Thrones, but for real, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think Arthur was probably hard, hard as nails. You know, he really was hard. And don't forget, he's also got to fight battles. He's got to defend his country. You know, he's got Camelot, which at this point is the Roman city of Chester, the biggest city ever built outside of Rome itself. It's this massive, massive Roman thing. He's got to defend that. He's got to look after all the territory around that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, work with other warlords who are equally as ruthless as himself. Uh, There is actually one occasion when he ends up campaigning into North Wales and he goes and batters his own people because they're causing him trouble. You know, so he's um, so much so, in fact, the guy, there was a guy who wrote a history about him, uh, a guy called Gildas. He wrote The Life of Arthur, the Vita Arthuri, and he wrote this fabulous book and, you know, full life, all about King Arthur, all the facts, all written in great detail. He got mm-hmm. so angry with what Arthur was doing that mm-hmm. he threw it in a river. He took that book and threw it in a river. Oh, and I'm like, oh, for goodness sake, if only he hadn't done that. Uh-huh. But that was the kind of man Arthur was. He could be t- totally infuriating. You know, he really did r- rub people up the wrong way. But again, he was a probably more Roman than Celtic. You know, he was definitely uh, more Roman. I think in his ancestry, actually, there's um, his mum's French, so he's half French. Um, and then a couple of generations back on his dad's side is a Spanish guy, uh-huh. Spanish-Roman general. So he's he's totally you know if you could get hold of Arthur's DNA you'd find he was he was you know Heinz fifty seven a real mixture he's a real put together of different cultures which again is very modern this is the thing about the Polychronicon actually without even trying because you've got to bear in mind it's took forty five years to get it into print so right. when I started it these kind of issues were not particularly current you know uh, they weren't 
you couldn't get your DNA done in the 1970s and stuff like that. But unintentionally, it's ended up coming together as an incredibly modern book. You know, it does answer these questions on a subject that up to this point has, you know, it's been mostly just froth and bubbles and confusion, you know. Uh, but it does make it does make a lot of sense now when, when we read back over it. Um, what, what just stood out in what you said was Guinevere and Mordred. Uh-huh, yes. You don't hear anything about that at all. I mean, you know, I don't know who turned in, in, into all the fluffy with Lancelot and all this stuff. But tell me more about that. I mean, that, that's just crazy. Um, well, the Lancelot thing with Guinevere, that's later. Okay, that's okay. later stuff. That's uh, Normans through Roger Reportio, who was in charge of Lancashire. We actually think the original model for Lancelot was probably a Roman guy called Linnaeus, and he was commanding Lancashire. So Lancelot, as the whole romantic love interest, you know, that's, right, that's right, later. Right. That's romances. So get him out the way and the actual nitty gritty. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what happened basically was that the Picts of Southern Scotland, when the Romans cleared off, they came over the wall. They came over Hadrian's Wall. Um, some on the East Coast, some on the West Coast. The West Coast lot came down through Lancashire. When they hit the River Mersey, which is the area I live in, uh, Liverpool mm -hmm. to Manchester, where there's this big river, they crossed that and some went left and some went right. The ones that went... Let's get this right. Anyway, one direction ended up putting them in Wales. So they became the, the Pictate, the tribe in northern Wales. And the other ones ended up in Derbyshire. So there were two different areas these two groups ended up in. So when you know that, mm -hmm. Arthur then has got loads of these Picts, these Pictish tribes people, in his territory. They're all over his area. So it makes perfect sense when he needs to get an army together to fight the Saxons. Mm -hmm. What he does is... He literally sends up to Scotland to a hill fort just outside Edinburgh uh, and says, look, send us a queen. I need a queen. And, you know, because the Picts, this is where it's so accurate. The Picts actually rule through their queens. So if he has a Pictish queen stood at his side, he's also got the support of all the Picts. And believe me, they can fight. You know, he's got Scythians in there as well, Scythians, which are absolute kick-ass Roman horsemen that can, you know, the, the army he built was, was second to none. Phenomenal, oh. phenomenal army. But that's why he marries Guinevere, essentially. When I say marries in inverted commas, you know, he's, he's already uh, married uh, his first, you know, first love and kind of put her away. So she's off somewhere stewing, you know, filling Mordred's brain full of nonsense. Um, oh. And then he's had a fling or two in his time, you know, and then he's ended up with Guinevere. What then happens is he gets a call from, I think it's Theodosius III, this almost unheard of Roman commander, mm -hmm. general, uh, emperor, because they're being attacked by the Goths. Rome is under attack. And Britain's done this before. Very often we sent forces, we sent armies over to the continent to fight for Roman generals. Happened back in the first century, second century. You know, now we're in the fifth century. It's still going on, but it's the last time it's recorded as happening. So Arthur jumps, jumps on a ship, big ship with all his warriors, you know, um, um, and and they all sail off. They all they all end up on the continent. That kind of a, a scenario can take a couple of years. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen as quickly as it happens over here. And then rumours start to come back. I mean, it's not really Guinevere's fault because these rumours are coming back saying he had a big fight, big scrap. As soon as he got into France, and he's dead. Mm -hmm. And she wow. thinks he's dead. 
So the logical thing to do then is that Mordred's going to come along because he's, you know, one of Arthur's only surviving sons. Arthur had seven sons in all, and Mordred's probably the last survivor out of all of them. Mordred comes along and goes, hey, I'm the eldest. You know, I I'm born to his first love. I'm going to take over. I'm going to take charge. Uh -huh. So in a, in a sense, he acquires Guinevere and Guinevere acquires him. And, and that unity continues. And then, you know, a year later or a couple of years later, Arthur comes strolling back into Camelot again, at which point Mordred and his troops take off like a scalded rat. Um, and Guinevere then, in disgrace, also flees back to Scotland. And, and it's a doubly sad end because when she gets to Scotland, her tribe... Uh, it's they they were it was said it was said because I'm drifting into legend here but right, some right. Fa some fact of this it was said that her particular tribe kept big cats they had big cats as pets oh, boy. so you're looking okay. at leopards panthers you know that kind of thing lions even maybe and as she came up to the hill fort they just let them loose and that was her end she was torn to pieces by big cats on the on the side wow. of the fort for sleeping with somebody else and not being loyal right to the very end to Arthur. It was a matter of honour. She disgraced the Pictish nation. Then Arthur lands. Arthur has a few battles round up north here. And then all of a sudden off goes Mordred with, you know, all his forces. And they end up getting down past Baller Lake to get as far as a place called Dolgethley. And just past Dolgethley, this is the beauty of it, there's still a place called Arthon Gamlan, which is Camlan. And it's the battlefield of Camlan. Um, the farmers for years have been pulling human bones off the fields around this place. So we know it's a battle site. Uh, it's officially recognized uh, as being the site for Camlan. And basically, Mordred has this massive ding dong, enormous scrap. And the last two guys left on the battlefield fighting are Arthur and Mordred, which is what you'd expect. The commanders come in at the end. Arthur kills Mordred, but Mordred gets Arthur with a poisoned weapon which is how the Saxons used to fight. They used to poison the weapons. And then we've got this legend of, you know, three days later, Arthur dies. You know, his, his sword Excalibur is, is thrown into the lake, which I'm pretty positive is Bala Lake. Uh, it's at the bottom of there somewhere. Uh, he goes back to Innisfallach of Avalon, um, the hill fort, which is one called Care Guy. That's what it's mm -hmm. called now. But the chieftain of Allo had it for years when Arthur was alive. Um, that's where his wounds attended. He gets dumped on a ship. It sails off, mm -hmm. sails off down the River Dee, round the headland of the Wirral. And then I'm not going to say where it goes after that. You'll have to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a brilliant story, though. It's fantastic. It's well worth going a bit further. But no, it doesn't It doesn't end well for Mordred or Guinevere. Um, you know, really doesn't. It's a shame. Um, and Sir Gawain as well dies in one of those final battles. He dies as mm -hmm. soon as he gets off the ship which is a shame because he was a fantastic character as well. What about Excalibur? Let's talk about that. Did, do you think it exists? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's magical in the movies and whatnot, but do you think there was actually a, a certain sword that, that, that was the Excalibur? Uh, yeah, there are a number. There are a number of swords. Um, and I can tell you a few of the interesting bits about that because okay. there's, there's a thing called the 14 Treasures of Britain. And one of the 14 Treasures of Britain is a sword, a magical sword. Um, so that's one of the swords that is attributed to the Arthurian legends. Mm -hmm. However, did he pull Excalibur from the stone? The answer is yes, he did, surprisingly, because, and this is archaeology for you, in the Bronze Age, they would cast bronze swords in stone moulds. 
Now, it's said in the legend that, you know, Merlin named the sword. So you can imagine he's got a stone mold. It's got bronze in it, casting the shape. So he splits the stone. He gets Arthur to pull the sword from the stone. And Merlin names it Calderbolg, Cal Caliburn, which means flashing one or shining one. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the actual ceremonial sword that Arthur was crowned with at Chester at the age of 15. He was crowned with that. Well, there were five other nobles, sorry, four other nobles there, right. all of whom had bronze swords. But at this point, this is your archaeology again, you can't go into battle with a bronze sword because the Romans have invented iron swords. So in the legends, eventually, when you piece all of the, the original evidence together, it turns out Arthur also had a pair of iron swords. So Excalibur or Calderbolg is his you know, ceremonial sword. Mm -hmm. And there's another one that's very often referred to as Excalibur, the Excalibur, which is made of iron. Now, the bronze one ends up at the bottom of Bala Lake, which if you know your archaeology is exactly where you'd expect a bronze, mm -hmm. bronze age style sword to end up going because it's thrown into the watery depths. It sinks down. Thousands of them have been found in lakes, thousands of them, especially over here because it's a Celtic ceremony. The iron one, okay, fast forward all the way to the Crusades. Richard the Lionheart, so the guy, you know, who's the Templar king with his, you know, red crosses and everything, he arrives at Jerusalem uh -huh. um, and doesn't go in because when he's stood outside the walls of Jerusalem, he says, oh, well, I can't go in. I'm a warrior. I'm drenched in blood, and this is the holy city. I can't go in. So he sends, I think I'm right in saying it's Richard of Peterborough. He sends him in with some gifts for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And one of them is the Iron Sword of King Arthur. And that's in the medieval records. I always say this in interviews. One of these days, I'm going to you know, get a TV program or something, and I'm going to end up phoning up the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I'll be like, have you got a rusty iron bar in a cupboard somewhere? You're not sure what it is. Because <laughs> that's usually what happens. They never throw anything out, do they, in churches and stuff. So... They may just still have it. You never know. It might still be there. But it'll be a Roman gladius. That that one will be a Roman gladius, a proper nice. fighting sword. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, but those swords are beautiful too. Yes. Oh, absolutely. absolutely beautiful. A... I have one here. Yeah, it'll be a stormer. It's it really not Arthur's. Is. It's not Arthur's, but I have one. <laughs> yeah. I think I might have one somewhere as well, actually, because I've got some early Roman kit knocking around. So I've probably got one. You know, my dad collected knives. I, I, I collect swords. Yeah, I just collect them all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've just, I'm in the process of selling a cannon. So that gives you some idea of what my uh, my little hidey hole looks like. Man, I gotta fly, I gotta fly the UK and visit you, boy. Yeah, be <laughs> yeah, come over and we'll do some deals. <laughs> yeah, we'll do some deals. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Southwest wouldn't mind if I took a, if, uh, you know, if I took a cannon home with me. I just imagine you turning up at customs with that. You, you oh. have two big, two big weightlifters like carrying the barrel. You know, it's they're, they're not oh. small. Get through Homeland Security with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can just see it. Um, talking about Arthur, you know, being a warlord personality. How did all this stuff, okay, get twisted into legend? I mean, obviously, he he was this great warlord, but how did it end up getting? I mean, were they trying to clean up his legend? Is what happened, and that's how it got twisted into, into what it got twisted into. Well, this the, this is where the time span 
comes okay. into play. This is where that becomes okay. important because, you know, he's dead. He dies by the time you get to sort of five, three, nine. So he's dead. Oh. And then his first legend, the first time he's ever referred to in a legend is probably, probably around 600 AD. So about a generation or two later, he's already being hailed as a phenomenal warrior. But if you think about the circumstances, you know, everything's just been obliterated, destruction, plague, death, all the rest of it. They're looking back to a golden age. He's the last of this, you know, Roman Empire, thousand year golden age. He's the last one. So certainly that's going to qualify him as going into legend. And the few stories and few notes that have survived, they start to cobble them together. Then it starts to get this kind of reworking because it's the Welsh that put, put all the stories together. Right. They combine some of it with the Anglo-Saxon material. So we've got things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, you know, things like that, that, that tell you when all the battles take place and what's going on. Then 1066 and all that, you've got William the Conqueror. So you've got the Normans coming over here. Now, I know it's 500 years later, but oh. by this point, Arthur's become a legendary Welsh hero. And quite a few of them are waiting for him to come back to liberate the country. That's the last thing William the Conqueror wants. You know, he's just conquered the whole of the British Isles in 1066 through oh. to 1076. He's just done all of that. He doesn't want any trouble with the Welsh. But inevitably, he does have trouble. So what the Normans do, and this is where it gets really clever, is somewhere in the 1100s, they start to pinch the stories and sew them together into the national legend that you find in Geoffrey of Monmouth. Mm -hmm. And it's given a different spin. It's given a Norman spin. So all of a sudden, the Normans, you know, hey, we are the new inheritors of, of Arthur. You know, mm -hmm. we can claim this, we can claim that, we can take this land, we can take this castle. You know, no, he's not coming back. You know, they, they do this huge reworking of it. So really, once you get past Jeffrey and Monmouth, you kind of, you, you're well and truly into the Walt Disney territory. And, it, and it's politics. They're rewriting it according to land ownership. And by the time you get to the medieval knights, it's actually quite funny because, you know, pretty much every medieval estate in Britain had a connection of some kind to Arthur. You know, every Norman abbey had a connection to Arthur. Every church had, you know, a saint or a relic or something connected to Arthur. And it, it kind of legitimized everything and gave everybody a right, you know, to, to rule and, and to do that. But at the, at the end of the day, some of it's true. There is, there's a tiny little element of truth in some of that medieval material. I, I struggled with it when I was producing the book. I, I really struggled with it. But as an archaeologist, you can kind of, you know, pick out the best bits. I mean, the classic one is the story of Excalibur, you know, hey, big anvil, big metal anvil, right, in the right, right. Guard, you know, pulling a double-handed broadsword out and that. Well, as, as soon as you realise it is a bronze sword and it's coming out of a stone mould, then it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's that's, you know, for medieval times, it's a modernised version of a much older process. So mm -hmm. some of it you can work out, some of it you can track back, but I wouldn't encourage folks to try. I think the early stuff's the early stuff and the later stuff's the later stuff and you, you kind of mm -hmm. have to separate that. Um, that's how it ended up the way it is, though. That's how you ended up with, you know, Excalibur and all the shiny armour and, you mm -hmm. know, Renaissance-looking stuff and what have you, and a grumpy old Merlin who I think is brilliant. It's a great film, that Martin Borman's film. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. Best Merlin ever. He absolutely hates everything he does, Merlin. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> now, now you keep mentioning the the shining armor. Tell me the reality. What what is the reality of a knight during that time period? Okay. Um, well, I'll start with how he would have looked. I mean, the the cover of the book is a pretty good representation. He would have worn probably Scythian, Scythian type uh, leather, flexible armor. He would have carried a um, very late Roman, sort of early Byzantine, maybe style sword. Uh, clearly from his helmet, he's a horse warrior. Uh, the Mabinogion, which is a very old collection of Welsh stories, they describe his um, heraldic colours as broom flower yellow and pine needle green. So that's what he's dressed in on the cover. He's in yellow and green. So that's probably as close as we're ever going to get to how he originally possibly originally would have looked quite a dynamic figure um but you've also got to bear in mind the first knights uh were orders that were you know that centered around uh, prominent figures in the roman military uh the romans started putting like you know young men on horses with armor and swords and all that what we associate as a knight they started putting them together fairly soon after they coalesced as an empire so sort of just coming out the bc period into the ad period is is the origins of knights and those groups of knights are the origin of the arthurian knights which then in turn become the origins of the medieval knights okay Uh the the word knight which is connect is anglo-saxon so very very quickly after arthur you get knits knights which is what we understand uh, that comes in as a thing, if you like, during the Saxon period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Scythians, the, Scy- the Scythians were amazing. They come uh, from southern Russia. They're early ancestors of the Pazariks, and they were horse-mounted, and they wore flexible armor, scale mail, chain mail. Even the horses wore chain mail. They had these massive skirts of mail on them. So um, really, they were the last surviving proper Roman knights in Britain at the time of Arthur. And funnily enough, most of them, when they left the Roman army, they retired to places like Lancashire and Cumbria. So, you know, um, when you look at the Arthurian battle lists, you can see where Arthur's going. Um, And he goes, first thing he does, he goes straight up to Lancashire and hires the lot of them. You know, which you would. You know, right. I need an army. Where can I find an army? Oh, look, they're all up there at Ribchester. Oh, yeah, let's go and get them. So that's what he does. All the stuff actually makes military sense when it's put mm-hmm. in context, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, was it expensive to have an armor suit? Oh, yeah. It's it's always, it's always been expensive. Um, that's probably the reason why most people in prominent warrior positions did not go for plate. Because the logical thing is to say, well, let's, let's cover ourselves in metal. But actually, that's like bar one the number reason why they wouldn't do it. it the cost of that. Uh, I mean, oh, medieval times, I can quote cost. You know, the horse is the same mm-hmm. as a Porsche 911. You know, it, it's three years wages um, just to get a suit of armor. It's three years wages in some cases for a sword. So you've got to be phenomenally rich to do that. And that's in medieval times, let alone going back to, you know, the Romans have just left and you stuck with whatever's here in Britain. So that would have been phenomenally difficult to get quality stuff back then. Uh, But they made these things called gambesons where they just sewed metal plates into a thick padded shirt. Um, And they've tried it. They've tried those against arrows. They'll protect you against pretty much everything a gamberson will so if you then stuck another layer on top of that so you know you you stick a sort of overkirtle and then mm-hmm. chain mail and then you know 
odd leather bits here and there and what have you. It's pretty good protection. It's about as good as you can get. But yeah, really expensive, really expensive. The other question I have is when I was over in England and Hungary, Budapest, you know, the, 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 all the museums back there, back then with the medieval stuff, they were mentioning how a lot of the armor that, well, back then, this is like 20, 20 years, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, how a lot, of, a lot of the armor pieces that they had, you know, the, the full armor itself, were from pages and not, not, not necessarily from the knights themselves. Wow. Um, do you know, to some extent, I would kind of disagree with that. Okay. It depends. It hangs, right? It hangs on your definition mm -hmm. of a knight. Now, if you're being really strict and you're going, right, the Romans had knights, clearly the Celts had them, because that's what Arthur is. The Saxons definitely had them. And then going up to the Battle of Hastings when you've got Saxons versus Normans. Uh -huh. So that then covers a lot of other things like Jutes, Angles, you know, Swedes, Danes, everybody. That they're, they're all wearing something. They're not going to go into battle you know, wearing a, a T-shirt. They've all got something on. Uh, so I would take odds a bit because most of what the regular troops, the regular forces would have worn, would have been fairly substantial armour. I think the only difference when it comes to knights is that it's made to measure. That That's your key, okay? Um, because they would start, let's say you're a nobleman, they would start you off with, you know, as a kid, just with a chain mail. They'd start mm -hmm. you off with that. Mm -hmm. By the time you'd turn into a teenager, and I'm not kidding when I say this, they could literally spring vault from the ground to the back of a horse wearing full plate and chain mail. You know, uh -huh. and it's like there's, there's another Irish hero over here called Cúhulín, um, mm -hmm. who's an Irish uh, legendary uh, character. It was said that he performed more when you actually deduce what it says about him he was more like an armor plated ballet dancer you know it's like a martial art you know think sort of mm -hmm. proper full on bruce lee but in a tin can you know and that's because the plate and the mail was all made to fit so mm -hmm. it, it's skin tight your body takes the weight of it all you know um as a reenactor, because I've been a reenactor for years as well, I can vouch for the fact that if you've got an ill-fitting helmet or an ill-fitting set of armor, or you know the position of your shield straps is wrong, or right. you know the weight, the, even the weight of the sword. You know, I've got one sword I could fight all day with, and I've got another one which is basically just a piece of metal. It's useless, completely useless, um, and the difference is absolutely enormous. So again, going back to the museum that you chatted to, um, right, right. Uh, they, they will be making the point that that's, that's probably the biggest difference. The regular troops, the pages, the uh, archers in particular, uh, you know, mercenaries, they, they would just wear whatever they could get their hands on. But the nobles, it was all fitted. Everything was fitted. That's the reason why that armor is so rare. Uh -huh. It's because, you know, if you're in the middle of a battle, most people don't realize this, you know, let's say you've got, full-on army now an army back in this period is only well 400 500 people is huge that's an enormous army so if oh, they start running to thousands you, you're into full-scale national wars what they would do is they'd run at each other you'd get a massive bang there'd be lots of stabbing and within about six to eight minutes the whole thing would just be covered in bodies it looked like a butcher's back room wow. in minutes and the next thing that would happen is 
the rest of the army so you're talking about the cooks the farriers the blacksmiths mm -hmm. uh, women and children anybody else would then go onto the battlefield carrying little tiny knives and if you were a nobleman and you had a coat of arms and it was obvious you were rich they'd pull you off and then sell you back to either your own people or to the enemy they'd sell you for a ransom but then if you're just a normal, average, everyday Joe, they'd use these little knives to actually kill you and steal everything. They'd even steal your boots. They'd steal the buttons. They would steal anything they could get their hands on. So within a couple of hours on the average battlefield, the only thing left on the battlefield would be naked bodies. So you get these metal detectorists now who are like, yeah, let's go and do, you know, Battle of Totem Moor or whatever. Let's go metal detect. They get virtually nothing. You might get, you know, a few arrowheads and a few missing buckles, and but nothing. And the reason for that is because of these these battlefield vultures that just go out there and clear everything. So that's why a lot of the armor hasn't survived because it's all been taken back at the time. It's yeah. been reused, repurposed, you know, sold to other people. You know, it, to get a decent medieval sword or even a decent Roman sword is almost unheard of now. It is so difficult. You know, um, some examples of, of different types of sword, which we know were in general use, there are only single figure numbers of them that have survived, you know, two, three, you know, th there aren't that many of them. Um, people seem to believe that there are loads of them, but there aren't, you know, they're really not that common uh, because they were so valuable. Simple as that. Well, I know a lot of the swords you get now, obviously from eBay or wherever you're getting them from, are out of Persia. Yes. Um, yeah, it depends now more on what the archaeological rules are for what you can mm -hmm. get. I mean, for a great many years, there was tons of stuff coming out of Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania. Um, yeah, like you say, different places export different things at different times. But I have to say, I have to say now they're trying to, stop that because obviously mm -hmm. people are the asset stripping you know they're taking away history that belongs in that country um, mm -hmm. and some museums some far-sighted ones are actually sending stuff back um i think there's a museum out there in um might even be new york i think in, in the states they've got a mummy case a big gold mummy case that they acquired 100 plus years ago they're sending that back to cairo you know, for the museum in Cairo. And I think that's the right thing. I think there's certainly the big items, you know, the stuff right. that's really important that belongs back to the people that, you know, made it, that own it, that it's their history. Not fussy with the smaller stuff. I mean, they, they do still get a bit upset about you taking smaller stuff out and what have you. But, you know, private ownership and pride in, in antiquities has always been something that's preserved them. You know, we wouldn't have a lot of things if people didn't care about them and look after them. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a line there somewhere that needs drawing, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I've noticed for a while there on eBay, because I was collecting antiquities, but it wasn't uh, museum grade. It was the stuff that was non-museum grade that they, mm. they might have patched, which, which was still cool, you know, to have. I mean, I've oh, got, some Roman, I got some Roman bulls and vases back there and, you know, phallic symbols. <laughs> say no more oh, i've got to tell you, i've got to tell you about that right okay if, if you get one of these things you, usually you get i'm going to be as polite as i can here usually you get a willy with wings you know you yeah. get this or, or just just like a willy well right basically that's not what we think it is a lot of the roman soldiers used to wear them 
and it's to show how manly and masculine they are, but almost on a divine level. That's the wings on it, okay? And what it actually does is it sends out a message. The message is, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. So they're wearing these things going, I am basically dead hard, and if you want to come and tackle me, come and have a go. You know, this is the size of my manhood. That's what they actually mean. That It's nothing sexual. It's nothing to do with that. It's it's warrior, Roman warrior culture. Unless you get one carved on the pavement, in which case it's a signpost for a brothel. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so over the years, I was able to amass different things like, like um, you know, uh, oil lamps. Oh, there's millions. Things like that. Easy millions. Millions. Stuff. Yeah. Millions. A cornelian still ring, you know, th things like that that I've been able to amass. But I mean, they're not totally museum quality. I even have some 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 little vials, you know, some from oh, the um, tear collecting bottles. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah I've got some of those as well. But I notice when I go on eBay now, because it used to be cheap to get that stuff, because I guess there was a ton of it, and they were allowing it to be exported out. But now when you go on eBay to look for that stuff, it's really high price now to even get anything. Yeah, pretty much whatever's out there is is going to be what there is. Sooner or later, that's all there's going to be, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, difficult to get hold of. So word to the listeners, if you've got anything like that, hang on to it, you mm -hmm. know, because mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to be there forever. I mean, it is a finite resource. I suppose sooner or later mm -hmm. we will run out, you know. But as an archaeologist, I also happen to know how much stuff comes off digs and what ends up in storerooms and to be honest, the museums, you know, when, when, when it became the export and sale of antiquities, when it became difficult, on the one hand, the museums were going, hey, and then the next minute they were going, oh, no, what are we going to do with all this? Uh -huh, Where are we uh -huh. going to put it? You know, so again, it's you know, two sides to the argument. You know, it's uh -huh. costing probably over over the planet. It's costing trillions of pounds and dollars to store over uh -huh. the world all this stuff that they've dug up. You know, so what the hell do they do with it? It doesn't do a harm to let a few bits of it go. I'm positive. Yeah. Oil lamps in particular, ridiculously large number of oil lamps. You oh, know. yeah. So I've, I've got quite, it's not a big collection, but I've got a real nice, decent collection for a cabinet. Yeah. I would say that to all collectors. Once you get to one decent sized glass cabinet, yeah. start swapping out the rubbish and swapping it for good stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, just build it up. Because I, you know, I grew up with my mum and dad who were collectors, and it just got out of hand. You know, they filled the entire house with stuff. So I'm a little bit biased, and it can it can get out of hand. But what you're doing is you're curating a collection. You know, uh -huh. so when you approach it like that, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Metal detector is the best for that. They, and it's fun. Really, and it's fun. It's fun when people come yeah. over and you say, you know what that is? They go, no. I said, well, it's the, the, the that that goes back to BC. You know, you're looking yeah. at some, something Roman that some Roman guy had in his house or, or whatever. Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of cool to have. Hey, before we go, I love this. This was a great show. Thank you. Oh, my oh, God. It's, it's I love Arthur. How fun. old was Arthur dur dur during all this stuff that was going on? Okay, well, I can I can give you a sort of uh, brief sort of life story. Sure. Um, he's, he's born in five, uh, 483 um, to Uther and uh, Igea, who is uh, his mum, French. Um, as he's growing up, like I said, he's adopted by Hector and he grows up around Bala Lake through his sort of late childhood into his early teens. Uh -huh. uh, but he is educated. You know, I mean, for the day, he's getting a good Roman education, a good military education. His uh -huh. dad dies when he's 14. He gets crowned at Chester when he's 15. 
and all the other nobles recognize that he has the right to rule. I, in the book, have stated that he's got most of his war band together by the time he's 18. Mm -hmm. And his war band, I mean, Seguin's his cousin. So, you know, he's, he's surrounded by good people that support him and look after him. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's, by this point, he's already had a first child. I mean, it's not unusual for somebody in the teens at this point to have children. So probably before he's 16, he's produced Mordred. Um, which is not unusual, like I say. Uh, so Mordred's bumbling away in the background. It's a shame because Mordred starts off as a really good character. He's mm -hmm. pretty cool in the court of Arthur, but then he, he goes off the rails as he gets older. Um, he then goes on to fight battles and clear his territory, which he spends quite a number of years doing. So probably through his 20s into his 30s, it, it's a fight. You know, he's got a big area to sort out. In that time period, like I say, he has a couple of affairs, you know, and at the end of that time period, he then decides to settle down with Guinevere. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure he's in his 30s when the Battle of Baden takes place. Um, that's when they get rid of any Saxon, Saxon opposition. They literally stop the Saxon advance. Um, I've got dates in the book for that as well, and the dates do actually match pretty well with the Anglo-Saxon records, mm -hmm. the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, and then the archaeology you know, you can see where the Saxons stop. So he has this fabulous Battle of Baden, and then Merlin won. Merlin Logan dies. So that's a bit upsetting for him. I think he's, he's, he's really not happy with that. Mm -hmm. um, then you've got this slight decline. What he does, he breaks up the fellowship of, of, of the round table, uh, which incidentally is a building. It's Tablus Rotundus. It's in Chester. It's, it's the elliptical mm -hmm. building. Uh, he breaks up the fellowship of the round table and sends them all off on quests, you know, because they need the right to rule. They need the right. religious support. They need all this. So, so that's really through his 30s into his 40s. It's mostly that. It's, it's questing. Then when he's in his 40s, he ends up going over to uh, France to fight for Theodoric. Um, he's over there for quite a few years. He comes back um, and the year, the final year of the final battle, which is Arfon Gamlan, Camlan is 539. So he dies in 539. I think I'm right in saying, I'm, my maths is a bit dodgy. He's certainly in his early 50s. I think he's, I think he's 53 or 54 when he dies. Mm -hmm which at that particular point for a warrior is quite respectable. You know, if, if you managed to get to 60, then you were regarded as very old because not many people survive, you know, um, that long. Right. And in the process of that, he's also up to killing Mordred at the end. He had seven sons and they're all dead. So there's nobody to take his place. What he then does, there's a guy called uh, Kustenin um, who has a son called Cador. And Cador is his replacement. Is he appoints him as his replacement? Doesn't last ten minutes when the Saxons get going. You know, not a chance. And the Welsh then break up and start attacking each other, and the whole thing falls apart. And then after that, a lot of the remaining, I think, the last remaining knights oh. are Percival and let me get this right, Percival and one other. Can't remember who the other one is, but those two knights then subsequently die uh, immediately after him. It's probably in the plagues, you know, around the around the five forties. So that very briefly, I mean, I've whizzed through that. There's so much other detail that I could have given you about, you know, what's going on. All those gaps are filled in in the book. Uh, but yeah, that's that's roughly the life of Arthur. You know, this hour blew by. I love it. I could sit here and talk to you for hours about this topic. 
oh, there's, uh, I'll tell you, we've we've literally it's like skating across a lake on ice. You know, we've not plumbed the depths. The depths are, you know, you can do hours, you do hours and hours and hours on Arthur. Uh, and and this is this is the story that I was told at the beginning. I wouldn't be able to find anything out about, you know. Right, right, right. No, it's well, it's maybe, there. Look. Well, maybe we can get back together and continue this discussion. Do an Arthur part two. Yeah. yeah. I'd be glad to do Arthur part two. Yeah. yeah, let's do that. Let's do that because there's. A, I know. I know there's so much more to dig into. You know, we're looking at Arthur. I would love to do that. I just love this topic. Yeah, we'll. Yeah, we'll plumb the depths. We'll go elsewhere. Drop me a line. Um, okay. I'm always. I'm always available. <laughs> All right, sounds good. All right. Well, you have a great rest of your your, your evening, and uh, I will definitely be in touch. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. If anybody wants the book, by the way, go to oh, Amazon. Yes. It's on okay. Amazon. Uh, the publisher would never forgive me if I didn't do the advert. All the books I do, everything I do, it's all on Amazon. Off you go. There's nothing else called Polychronicon. <laughs> How can people find you? Um, Facebook. It's, it's that simple. If, in fact, it's really easy. Books are on Amazon. I'm on Facebook, so you can send me messages on Messenger, and I will accept you. I'm not funny about that and if you want to go see anything i've done in the past we've just uploaded all my back catalog to youtube um so you can either search youtube direct or go through a company called drake michigan there's about i don't know about 30 or 40 different things on there uh relating to me so you know that's it amazon facebook youtube dead easy all right okay well let me check my scheduling and see what's going on and i'll get back to you because i would really yeah. i would love to do a part two on this <laughs> excellent all right, Mark, have a great one. Have a good one. Bye. I am so fascinated by this topic. I'm definitely going to contact him to do a part two. I just love this topic. Tomorrow, Nancy Matz will be on. Um, she's got something to do Friday afternoon, so she's going to trade up and come on tomorrow. She's going to be doing a uh, movie discussion on a movie called um, Defending Your Life. Don't know what that's about. We'll find out tomorrow. That'll be our usual time at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I want to thank everybody for coming today, especially Mark, my good friend, my good friend from across the pond. And uh, I'll see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening and a great rest of your day.